Let me begin this way today. I will never forget it. It was the summer of 2004. Yes, I was already born then. That's okay. I'm, I'm a youngster. Summer of 2004, sitting in the Dairy Queen in Portales, New Mexico, with our eldest son, Matthew, taking him to college. Not to parent day like some of you got to do, but he was going uh, for football and had to be there early, so everything was deserted. And there I was, his father. My wife had abandoned me. She and her family were in Branson, Missouri. I had to do it by myself. And I'm sitting there in Dairy Queen, and I'm measuring my words, and I'm thinking, what words can I share with this boy, this 18-year-old? Because I know how that can go. Don't you know how that can go sometimes? You know, football. I mean, come on, right? And I'm giving what turned out to be my final words. Words of instruction. Final words of encouragement. Final words. And the theological term for this and how I felt would be this. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. And he looked across Remember, it's Dairy Queen, all right? It's big time. He looked across and said, Dad, you and Mom have already taught me a bunch of stuff, and I remember. And, of course, then I'm really crying now. I can't even keep it together. But I thought about the magnitude of final words. How, how do you wrap up this part of life and send them on? How do you do that? Well, today, we've made it to the end of Galatians. Look at the person next to you and say, you made it. You survived it. Come on, church, it's only six chapters. It's not like we just did Isaiah or something like that, all right? So we made it through, and we're at the end, and I've entitled the, the message today, Final Freedom Words. You know, uh, Galatians is all about freedom and grace, but today we study Paul's final freedom words to the Galatians, and I think what it must have been like under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God leading him, how in the world do you wrap this up? Remember the affinity he had for that region, Galatia, and for the churches that had been started. He's a church planter. He's a missionary. He had done all these things, and they had been succumbing to something different, something added to the gospel, and he has been really kind of chastising them, instructing them, contrasting things, on and on and on, and here we get to the final words. Let's look at it. Galatians 6, 11 through 18. Look at what large letters I have written to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good showing in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves. However, they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. And then let's key in on 14 and 15 if you get anything today. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. Wow. 
And then the benediction, if you will. May peace be on all those who follow this standard. And mercy be on the Israel of God, exclamation point. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, because I carry the marks of Jesus on my body. Brothers, the grace, there it is, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, speak to us today through these final words. May they not be final words in our life. May they be more words that just continue to compound what we are trying to be about, that we are trying to serve you. We are trying to follow you. We are serving you and following you as you work through us. And we recognize it is by your grace, faith in you alone, that you have saved us. And we're thankful for that. So God, speak to us today. Make the message unique to each one of our hearts. And we'll give you glory for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today we've just got three little sections to look at. The first one is this, a final warning. In verses 11, 12, and 13, we see a final warning that comes from Paul. And it starts out unique. Did you catch how it starts out? He Basically he says, look at the large letters that my hand wrote. He's saying, don't miss this. So the question is, for Lamar and everyone else, is why did Paul write this final paragraph? Why did he use his own hand? Why did he write in such large letters? Did you know that Paul often used an amanuensis? Anybody know that term? I've been asking people, and, well, you're smarter than most people. (laughs) What in the world is that? It's really a word. Put it in there. Your spell checker will not change it. It's really a word. Paul used an amanuensis uh, often to write. In fact, if, if you want to check that out, look at the end of Romans, Romans 16, 22, where this statement comes out of nowhere, all these names, and all of a sudden it says, I, Tertius, who penned this epistle in the Lord, greet you. Well, what is Emmanuel's? It's a secretary, kind of. It's a copyist. It's someone who is writing down what is being told to them, and this is how Paul did that. Now, We have a high view of God in Scripture, don't we, church? Amen? So we have no problem realizing that God inspires, instructs, and gets Paul to put it down just like he needs to. And even a guy that might be writing it down as Paul is giving it, God is capable of making that just like he wants it. Isn't that right? Aren't you thankful that our God is big enough even to give his words to us in an English Bible, in our language, so we can understand that? So let's not squabble about all that. Let's just remember, it's God's word, and he gives it to us, and here it is. But it's interesting to note that, because all of a sudden, Paul takes over. Get out of the way. With big letters, I'm going to write the end, the final words of this letter, of this epistle. Warren Wiersbe said it this way. The Holy Spirit inspired him to add these closing words to give one more contrast between the legalists and the spirit-led Christians to show that the spirit-led believer lives for the glory of God, not for the praise of man. And he wrote it in large letters for emphasis. Well, we see that in verse 11, but we get to the warning, verse 12, and, and we remember from Galatians that most of this letter, has, Paul has spent condemning the false teachings. You remember who this group, their name? You remember? The Judaizers? 
wanting to add circumcision, wanting to add things, works into salvation. And most of the letter is spent uh, condemning these things. But now, look at verse 12. Paul condemns even their motives for teaching their legalistic perversion of the gospel. He declares in this verse that they were motivated by religious pride, by hypocrisy. That phrase, for good showing, that's there, gives the idea of hypocrisy. They wanted to put a good foot forward or put a good face on or whatever cliche you want to use. And so he's talking about their motives. You see, these folks were not concerned about pleasing God by inward righteousness, but about pressing other men with outward stuff, outward legalism. And Paul's been hammering this, and now he hammers in, in verse 12, even their motive. The scholar F.F. Bruce commented in this way, whereas Paul was concerned about the Spirit's inward work in his converts so that Christ could be formed in them, the Judaizers' concern was for an external mark, a mark produced in the flesh for those whom they could win over to their side. Go back to Galatians 4, look at verse 19 with me. Look at Galatians 4, 19. Paul says, what, what a, a, a dear verse here. He says, my children, again, I am in the pains of childbirth for you. And look at that phrase. There it is. Until Christ is formed in you. That's what he's concerned about, not something externally. And then we get there in verse 12 and see a very interesting phrase, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. It's an interesting phrase. So I, I wonder, why the cross? Why does the cross bring, bring persecution? I'm not nailed to the cross. Are you guys? I don't think so. You're all sitting in nice, comfortable chairs. We're not nailed to the cross. What does it mean, that perse persecution of the cross of Christ? The reason that it is persecution is because the cross of Christ speaks of the necessity did you catch that? The necessity of a divine death that had to take place. This divine death was the only solution to the sin of mankind. Stop reading any books that tell you there's another solution. Quit listening to your friend who seems smart that tells you there's another solution. Listen, there's one solution for sin problem. Amen? And it's the divine death, Jesus Christ, we sing about it, shedding that red blood on the cross for us and on the third day being resurrected. He just conquered everything right there. Wow. And there's some doctrines, and hopefully you know the doctrines, and if you don't, listen to these short doctrines that fit with the cross of Christ. Number one, we are sinners. Scripture says we are sinners, every one of us. Every one of you. Are you good? Every one of you, your pastor too, we're all sinners. Second doctrine is this. This sin brings us under the curse of God. God is holy. He can't even look upon sin. And the curse is there. And here is what's neat about this doctrine. Jesus bore that curse for us. Where? On the cross. Number three, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. If this was possible, think about it for a minute. If it was possible for us to do something and earn salvation, guess what? 
the cross wouldn't be needed. Jesus would not have had to come uh, and, and live this perfect life and die a cruel death on the cross for us. I believe these doctrines humble us. They don't puff us up. They humble us to think that for God so loved the world, he sent his one and only. Wow. So let's get back to that persecution. What, what does that phrase mean, the persecution of the cross of Christ? It's simply this. When you think about these doctrines in the cross and Jesus' divine death, what we think about here is that lost people hate the cross. Why? Because it shines the light on the sin problem. So lost people act like lost people. They hate the cross, and consequently, they actively persecute those who proclaim it. I'm feeling that in the state of New Mexico right now. Are you? Now, it's a roundabout way, but it still all comes back to Jesus and our uh, Christian biblical worldview. Isn't that right? And we're getting persecuted. Maybe you're not getting persecuted, you know, someone right in your face or someone punching you, but it's happening, and it's happening. We should not be surprised because persecution comes with the cross of Christ. So he's giving this final warning, and then he moves into verse 13, and he just continues to expose the Judaizers a little bit more. He says, even though you're circumcised and you're demanding others to do that, you don't even keep the law. You guys aren't even keeping the law, even though you're trying to throw more law on people. However, here's what's crazy. You're desiring these Galatians, mostly Gentile converts, believers, you're asking them to be circumcised in order that the flesh of the Galatians, you might be able to boast. Did you catch it in verse 13? In order to boast about your flesh. Some of you might have uh, in your translation the word glory. That's, got, that's a lot of different, different uh, definitions and connotations of that. What you really need to think about is boast. Have you ever been around someone who boasts? Do you, don't you just love it? Let me see. Isn't it the best? Are you sure? Don't you just love it? Don't you just want to spend your entire Sunday afternoon with someone who boasts? It's nothing better than a conversation where you're talking with someone and all you hear is I, 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 I. And these folks wanted to boast. They didn't even keep the law, but they required this of other people. They put it on other people so they could boast. Look what I have done with these folks. Boyce comments on that phrase, boast in your flesh, in this way. This means that they wanted to boast in the number of circumcisions. They were trophy hunters and wanted to be able to report on mass conversions, circumcisions, in Galatia. Now, if Boyce stopped right there, I would be good. I, I was, when I read that, I was saying, amen. But then the last line brought it home to 2021 and me, and maybe you. Listen to this. The humbling parallel would be the tendency to take pride or boast in counting the number of decisions for Christ or the number of baptisms today. Even though we're in a string of weeks of baptism, it's not just so we can say this number, this number, this number. We, because of new life in Christ, because of baptism, uh, giving that picture to us, we don't say, wow, look at us, church. We say, wow, look at God and what he has done. Amen? Amen. 
And we look at people coming back in this room more and more each week when there's not a blizzard or ice. More and more each week. We don't, I don't just sit up in the office saying, oh, thank you, Sam, for that number. Wow, great. No, thank you, Lord, because people represent souls and we're supposed to come together and worship and be encouraged and then we're supposed to go out on mission. Thank you, Lord, for that. It's about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay, enough of that. Let's move on. So what do we boast about or in? Well, look at the final contrast. Here's the second section, the final, a final contrast, verse 14 and 15. These are the verses I really want you to key in on today because Paul is magnifying the contrast between himself and these false teachers. And about, you know, once a month or every two months, I've got to get a J. Vernon McGee quote in, okay? Don't send me emails if you don't like every, all of his theology. I don't like all of his theology. But he was a crusty dude that had a way of spinning a line. Here it is. You ready? Between Paul and the world, there was a cross. That should be the position of every believer today. That will have more to do with shaping your conduct than anything else. You will not boast about the fact that you are keeping the Sermon on the Mount or that you belong to a certain church. Or that you are a church leader or a preacher. All right, stop it. Or a preacher or a Sunday school teacher. You will not be able to boast of anything. You will just glory in the cross and the one who died there. Isn't that great? Yes. So he gets to this phrase in, in verse 14, and he says, but as for me, you may have, may it never be. It's a strong phrase. If you study the New Testament Greek language, language, this is the strongest way you can state a negative, period. The strongest way. And so this, this contrast is the strongest it can be between the negative of the Judaizers and the positive of the free gospel of grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Hmm. The Judaizers are boasting. And then Paul counters, uh, look at verse 14. He count, it's a counterpunch of all counterpunches. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Judaizers were boasting, but Paul says, man, the only thing in which to boast is not just the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go further, folks. The finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand? When he said, it is finished, that meant what? It is finished. There's nothing new to add. There's nothing to add to the canon. There's nothing that we can add. Don't, don't add another book or another verse or another phrase. Don't take anything away from it. It is finished. And, of course, that culminated with the resurrection. Jesus knew that was going to happen. It is finished. So we boast, as Paul does, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in our bank account, not in what church we go to, not how long we've been in Christian, not what neighborhood we live in, not what ethnicity we are. We could go on and on and on. No, we boast in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, church, I want to tell you something. The world needs to hear about the finished work of Christ. The world doesn't need to hear about everything we're against. Legislators need to hear that. But the world does not need to hear that. The world needs to hear about the finished work of Jesus on the cross and how that has impacted and changed our life and our very purpose. 
Tozer. Anybody ever read Tozer? Tozer should have been Tozer because he steps on toes. He says this, we must do something about the cross. And one of two things only we can do, flee it or die upon it. Isn't that good? Martin Luther, the cross of Christ runs through the whole of Scripture. Oswald Chambers, some of you read Oswald Chambers in devotionals, don't you? He said this, every doctrine that is not embedded in the cross of Jesus will lead astray. So let me ask you today, church, maybe you're just here for the first time, maybe you've been here for 50 years, I don't know. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time, maybe you're a new Christian, maybe you're trying to figure this out and you're seeking, where do you line up? Where do you line up with the cross of Christ? Evaluate today, don't waste another day, evaluate where you line up with the cross of Christ, the finished work of Jesus. It's a stark final contrast that Paul is giving here. And then there's the phrase in there of, in, in verse 10, 14 about the, the world has been crucified. Let, let's not forget, we have sanitized that so much in our English language, crucified, right? You've heard people use that in different contexts even, right? Oh man, you, they crucified me over my... Con you didn't get crucified, you might have gotten in trouble, but you didn't get crucified. That phrase means literally to nail or fasten to a cross and so to crucify. It means literal death by nailing to and hanging from a cross. Maybe more accurately, a stake. It's an elaborate stake, but it's a stake. It's a strong statement, and Paul puts it here. He goes further with the contrast in verse 15. Look at verse 15. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. You may want to underline that word. What matters instead is a new creation. This is a pinnacle for me right here. This echoes what Paul just said in the last chapter. Do you remember Galatians 5 verses, verse 6? Let's look at it. 5 verse 6. He says this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What matters, again, is the work of the cross. And what is the work of the cross? We see in verse 15, the work of the cross is a new creation, a new creature, a new creation. New Testament scholar West says it this way. In this verse, Paul gives his reason for glorifying or boasting in the cross of Christ. The cross has power, listen to this, the cross has power to make a believing Jew or Gentile a new creation. You see how that works? That's everybody, folks. Which results in this. Here's the thing. Here's the thing you may have been stumbling about. Or, or, or maybe people have asked you, are you really a Christian? Or maybe they said, what's really going on with your life? You may have stumbled this way because the cross of Christ that leads to us being a new creation means this. There's a radical transformation of character. 
You cannot continue to go this way. There's repentance, and you must go this way. Yes, we sinned. Yes, we messed up. But we're going this way. There's been a transformation in our life. It's regeneration. Now, you know the parallel passage to this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You may have memorized it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Another writer says it this way, although there is a temptation to fall back, backslide, to fall back in a rule-keeping mindset that says, I must follow certain religious rules if I want God's approval, to this Paul says, no, the spiritual life that pleases God is being the new creations or new creatures that God made us to be. We live by grace. True spirituality isn't imposed from without. It bubbles up and overflows from within. Wow, interesting. So let's look at that. New creation. You kind of know what new means, don't you? There's more to it. This word new refers not just to new, but to a new kind What does that mean? Something that is unprecedented, something that is uncommon, something that is unheard of. That's what it means about new. You've never experienced it before and it's just new again. No, it is unprecedented. It relates to this, being not previously present. When God saved you and when God saved me, something happened. We became a new creation and it's something that was not previously present. Nowhere to be found. Had nothing to do with mama or daddy or grandma or grandpa. Any of that has to do with us and the Lord. And it's new. And then the word creation, it refers, you know what it means. It refers to bringing something into existence. But don't think of I created something with my 3D printer, okay? By the way, I don't have a 3D printer. My birthday is November 30th, though. <laughs> I created something with a 3D. No, it's not what it means. What does that creation mean? It means bringing something into existence that has not ever existed before. And we know from Genesis 1-1, don't we? What it's talking about. In the beginning, God created. The universe was created out of what? Nothing. Yeah. Deal with that. Los Alamos Labs, Sandia Labs, uh, wherever you else want to deal with, you know. Physicists, deal with that. Created out of nothing. See, it hadn't existed before, so we're new. It's unprecedented, and we're a new creature or creation. This had not existed before. New life in Christ had never existed with us until God saved us, until transformation, until regeneration. In other words, God's act of bringing the universe into existence. And if you want to study that more, look at Hebrews eleven three, and you'll see a commentary on new creation. It is notable that this word always occurs in the New Testament in connection with God's creative activities. It never is used for man's or woman's or anyone else's creations. It's only God's, 1 Peter chapter 2. And let me just stop and remind you about the gospel here one more time. The Bible says in Romans that we are sinners. Everyone is a sinner, right? And there's a penalty for that. And it's death. It's separation from holy God. The wages 
of sin is what? Death. But, don't you love when that's there and something good comes? But God offers us free gift, right? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be, what's the word? Saved. We confess, Lord, that means we, we repent and give our life to the new master. And we believe that what the, the book says really happened. It's not just an allegory, but Jesus really did resurrect on the third day. You will be saved. Has that happened to you? If not, you've missed out on the good news of Jesus Christ. Wow, what a contrast. Well, let's finish up. Look at the final benediction. The final benediction, verses 16 through 18. He starts out by saying, may peace be on all those who follow this standard. Isn't that an interesting word? Guess what word we get from that? We get the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N. Canon as in, you know, we, we talk about that, don't we? The, the canon, the 66 books of Scripture that God's put together exactly how he wants it to be. So, so he uses that word with standard. And he says, all who follow this standard or this canon are bestowed with something. Did you catch the benediction? Peace and mercy. Anybody in here want more peace in your life? How about more mercy? Boy, I want a lot more mercy. Please, give me mercy. Would you guys over here on this side give me mercy, please? All right. And you guys give me peace. I'm going to have a great week. Wow, it's going to be awesome. Yes. But the standard, what is the standard? It's not enough just to define the word, but what is the standard? It's the message of salvation. Do you remember it? We've been hammering it over and over in Galatians. It's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Justification. That's simple. There it is. Timothy George wrote this. This conditional blessing at the end of the letter stands in marked contrast to the conditional curse which Paul opened his epistle with. Look at Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. See if it's a little different than this ending. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Uh, not that there's another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to change the gospel of Christ. But even if we come or an angel from heaven should preach to you, an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse beyond him. And if that wasn't enough of an em emphasis, he goes on in verse 9 and says, as we have said before, I now say again, pay attention people, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. That's how it started and now we're to the point of we see grace and peace. Lest it be thought, though, that Paul is in any way anti-Semitic because the Judaizers came down, what? They were Jews. They came down and tried to put circumcision on these Gentiles. He's not at all. He demonstrates in this verse with a little phrase, did you catch it? His deep love and concern for true Israel. That What does that mean? The Jews that had come to Christ. And so when we get that title of Israel of God there at the end of the verse, that's referring to saved 
Jews. So he's covering it all. And then we get to verse 17, and there's a final command to the Galatians. It's kind of practical. <laughs> he says, don't give me any trouble. Don't give me any trouble. But that word is a, is, is a word that has more meaning. It means to chop, to cut down, to strike. Figuratively, it's like striking someone's chest. He says, don't give me any more trouble. It's a state of discomfort. It's a state of distress. Really, this, the primary meaning is beating. And we know the story of Paul, don't we? He received trouble over and over again. He had literally experienced beatings. And he says, I carry the marks of Jesus on my body. Don't give me trouble. The word there is stigmata. You've heard of that word before, haven't you? Scars. Wow. This was Paul's final proof, once and for all, to his critics. He belonged to Jesus, and according to Galatians 1.1, where we started, he was an authentic apostle of Christ. In fact, more than that, he says what? I am a slave to Christ. I am not a slave of the law. Warren Wiersbe says this, There was a time when Paul was proud of his mark of circumcision. Do you remember that? Philippians chapter 3. But after he became a believer, he became a marked man in a different way. He now glorified in the scars he had received and in the suffering he had endured in service for Jesus Christ. Don't give me trouble. I've had plenty of it for the cause of Christ. Take a look. Let's stop for a moment. Let me ask you this. How are you doing today? Is there someone, think about Judaizers for a minute. Is there someone in your life today who's trying to convince you or coerce you that you need to do this? Or perhaps is someone in your life trying to convince you not to do this? Claiming that these are things you must do or not do to be saved to be spiritual. Paul would say to them today, it could be a family member telling you this. It could be a friend, someone you work with. You know how they get going on these tangents, right? It could be simply this. Paul would say, don't let them trouble you. Tell them to stop it. And I learned the phrase a long time ago. It's kind of hokey. Keep the main thing the main thing. Have you heard of that? I know, what is that? Okay, we've heard it. If I had a dollar every time I heard it, what does that mean? It means the good news, the gospel. Keep the main, the, the stuff about Jesus, that's what's most important. Doesn't mean there can't ever be anything else you want to study or look at and grow in other areas, but keep the main thing, the main thing. And Paul, I think Paul would say that. He said, don't trouble me. And then he books in uh, Galatians in the final verse with grace. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, grace. And here in 6.18, he says, grace. Have you ever read anything about, by uh, Jerry Bridges? Very convicting guy, dealing with holiness. And he says this. I love this. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. It's notable that this is the only letter that Paul wrote that ends with brothers. Did you catch it? Right there in verse 18. He hasn't given up. He's confident that there's these believers that don't have to succumb to this. They can come back to the good news. They can come back to salvation that Jesus does it. 
through faith alone in Christ alone. Wow. So, so there's no personal con, uh, commendations or praise like in some of his letters, but there's brothers. That's what's there. And Paul wants to leave the Galatians with encouragement. Hey, you're, you're still my siblings in Christ, right? We, we get the right to become part of the family of God, children of God, right? John 1, 12. And then the last word. Does anyone see it? Could you say it for me? Amen. Or some of you might say, amen. Well, great. You just said the Hebrew word there. It is amen. It comes from a Hebrew verb, which is amon. What does it mean? To be firm, to believe. It's the idea of conveying certainty. And we, certainty. And we say amen lots of times, don't we? We could say it this way in English. So be it. When I say amen to you, I'm agreeing with so be it or let it be so. And he closes that way. And I want to close that way today, church. As we get ready to pray, I want to close in this way. I want to say amen. I say amen to there being no other gospel but the free gospel of grace. I say amen to the message of salvation by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. I say amen to the finished work of Jesus and the cross. I say amen to a new creation, and I say amen to standing firm in the freedom of Jesus and the gospel. I say amen, and we say amen. And with that, we go and pray to our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you join me? Dear Jesus, thank you for every word in this book. Thank you for the reminders that we receive. God, I'm so grateful that you led this letter to end with new creation. And I pray today, I've been praying all week, Lord, for those who need to receive your amazing, life-changing salvation to become new creations. God, I pray for that. I long for that. I yearn for that, that people would not be... Uh, slaves of sin anymore, that they would not have bondage, but God, you would come into their lives and save them. I pray whether people are online this morning watching live stream or whether they're sitting in the corner of this room and anywhere in between, God, that you would just save people. And God, for the saved, I pray that we would understand what that means and that we would say amen to all these things. God, help us to be for Jesus. Help us to be for evangelism. Help us to be for discipleship. Help us be for being good neighbors and good witnesses and people who love their neighbors. Help us to be for these things, God. Help us to be for life. Help us to be especially for new life in Christ. God, we ask that you would work, and we thank you for your words and how they penetrate. They're a double-edged sword, and they penetrate all the way through us, even into our bones. And you read us, God, and you know what we need, and you've known that before we ever knew that. And you offer your grace to us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.